Well, would you turn with me then in your copy of God's Word to the letter to the Romans... And we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? I'll be preaching on verses 12 through 21, but I'd like to go ahead and begin at the beginning of the chapter and read the whole chapter this morning. This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then our text for today Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come." But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning uh, by just making a very bold statement that I think that Romans 5 may be one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, if not the most important. And having spent the last three weeks working through those glorious benefits of justification in those first 11 verses, you might be inclined to agree with me. After all, just think of those benefits. How wonderful is it to know that having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. That though you were once at war with your Creator, God has made peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. And that He now fills your life with that peace that passes understanding to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And on top of that, you not only have peace, but you have access to God's presence, to this grace in which you stand. You have an audience with the King of Kings and with the Lord of Lords. And what's more, you can rejoice in hope of glory, for you know that having been justified, you will also be glorified. And that means that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, because God is using even your sufferings to shape you and to conform you into the image of His Son. And He pours His love out into your heart through the Holy Spirit that has been given to you. He died for you even while you were still an enemy, while you were yet a sinner. And because you've been justified, you know that at that last day you will be saved from His wrath. That God saves you from Himself. So that rather than a day to fear, that day has become a day for you to long for. and to rejoice in because you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Those are wonderful things. Important things. And yet as glorious as all of those things are, they're actually not the reason I think this is the most important chapter in the Bible. The reason I think this chapter is so important is because of what we find in these next verses beginning today. The benefits are the glorious outworking of something deeper. They are the outworking of God's plan and purpose of redemption. And here in verses 12 through 21, it's like Paul takes us behind the benefits to explain the structure of history and the actual inner workings of the gospel itself. You can think of it maybe like the gears of the gospel. I don't know if any of you have a grandfather clock in your house. We have one in ours. My grandparents had one in theirs. But if you can imagine for a moment a grandfather clock, 
Maybe it plays the Westminster chimes. You know the tune? Bum, 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 bum. Have that picture in your mind. You see the weights. You hear the methodical tick of the pendulum. You see the hands moving around the face and the numbers. And then every hour on the hour, you hear those chimes. Bum, 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 bum. And then they resonate and ring out, telling you exactly what hour it is. Well, if you think of all of those external things of the clock, what you see and what you hear, those are like the benefits. You don't really even need to be in the room to know what time it is. You can just listen for the sound of the clock and you'll know. But you also know that behind that clock face, behind the weights and the pendulum and the chimes, behind all of that, there is a cabinet full of gears and cogs that are spinning and making the whole thing work. In the passage before us today, it's like we get behind the clock face of redemption to see the structure of history and the inner workings of the gospel. If verses 1 through 11 are like the chimes of the clock, then verses 12 through 21 are like the gears of the gospel. They are like the cogs. And today we want to begin to understand these gears of the gospel. And so today is really going to be a little different. It's going to be more of an overview of this entire section. We're going to come back and we're going to, like a clockmaker, sort of take it apart and look at the pieces in the coming weeks. We're going to try to discern how the various cogs fit together and turn. But today, we just want to appreciate the big picture. And as we try to appreciate the big picture, what we'll find is that this, this whole passage is comprised of a comparison between two men, between two atoms. And as these two atoms are compared and contrasted, we will see that they are responsible for two different actions. And as they take these actions, we are going to see that there are two very different aftermaths. And so as we look at this passage and we get the big sense of it, these are the gears we're going to consider today. First, the two atoms, and then their two actions, and then finally, the two aftermaths of their actions You'll notice that in verse 12, Paul begins by bringing us back in time to the various earliest days of creation. He has talked a lot about sin and evil in these early chapters of Romans, but now he says something about where sin and evil all began. Here he's teaching us about the origin of sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're going to talk a lot more about that at length next week. But you see, sin and evil are not natural. They are unnatural. They were not part of the world as God created it. Everything that God created was good. But if He created everything good, how did everything get so bad? 
How did we get to this place of such moral deficiency that the Scriptures can just simply say, none is righteous, not even one. That no one understands, that no one seeks for God, that all have turned aside, that together they've become worthless, that no one does good, not even one. How did we get here? It's a good question. It's a question that our naturalistic culture has no answer for. Naturalism cannot account for the existence of good and evil. Naturalism cannot explain why some things are good and some things are bad. Because in a naturalistic worldview, all that governs behavior is biology. Just neurons firing in our brains, just chemistry and instinct. But if all we are is a collection of atoms and nothing more, how do you explain your guilty conscience? How do you explain the fact that you know when you have done something evil? How do you account for the fact that humans are moral beings who know right from wrong and who make laws based on that knowledge? The Bible gives an answer. That sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and death spread to all men. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But for now, who is this one man? Paul doesn't initially say, does he? Initially, Paul just says he's one man. One man who is the source of sin. One man who introduces the principle of sin into the world through whom sin and death will spread to all others. But as you go on and, and you read and you get to verse 14, he finally identifies him when he says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And so the one man is the first Adam. That man that God fashioned from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Not some mythical figure, but a real historical person. That man who was the head and father of the whole human race. But then you see, as Paul goes on in verse 14, he begins to speak about another man. And he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now that's also a little bit cryptic, isn't it? He, again, does not immediately identify who he's talking about. He simply says that there is somebody coming, and Adam is a type of him. But again, we don't have to wait long to find out who he's referring to, because in verse 15 he says, For if many died through the one man's trespass, that is Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The first one man is Adam. The second one man is Jesus Christ. But what does it mean that Adam was a type of the one who was to come? Well, our English word type actually comes in directly from the Greek word tupos, and that just simply means an image or a pattern. One commentator puts it like this, tupos originally referred to the mark of a blow, like a stamp, and by extension was used to refer to a copy or a pattern, a type, 
One might say that types have the stamp of the antitype. Now that might sound a little bit convoluted, so let me give you an illustration of this. I think we actually have a very good illustration of this. Some of you are old enough to remember this very ancient technology that we used to call a typewriter. A few years ago, I was telling some of our teens that it wasn't until college that I wrote my first paper on a computer. That prior to that, all of my papers had written, been written either on an electronic or a mechanical typewriter, if not by hand. And I could tell, tell by their vacant stares that some of them did not even know what a typewriter was. They had never seen one, let alone used one. It really does feel like ancient technology. For those of you who remember, first you had to take a sheet of paper, turn it upside down, and then feed it through that rolling mechanism on the top, and then you turn the knob and clicked it until you hoped it got to the right line. And then what happened when you, when you pressed the keys and you really had to press them down? Well, a key lever would pop up and the, this corresponding type bar would smack an ink ribbon and leave a letter on your page. It would leave this clearly stamped imprint of whatever letter you had just typed. Now, I will spare you the painful reminders of whiteout <laughs> and what you had to do if you actually made a typing error. But the point is that the typewriter is a very good illustration of what Paul says when he says that Adam was a type of the one to come. Each of those type bars that would spring up and hit the ink and leave that impression on the page, each of them had a little type of a letter on it, a little image that would be stamped onto the page. And so when Paul says that Adam was a type of Christ, he's saying there's not just a resemblance between the two, but that Adam in some way pictures and patterns the work of Jesus Christ. Now, there are actually lots of types in the Bible. Uh, Douglas Moo, a commentator, says that any Old Testament person or institution or event that has a divinely intended function of prefiguring Jesus, his work or his kingdom, can be called a type. Sometimes the Bible referred to these types as copies or as shadows. For example, in Hebrews 8, it says that the tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And then it's going to go on and it's going to use this word, type and antitype, to speak of that. Paul says that Adam functions in this way. He is a type of Christ. Well, how so? How is Adam a type of Christ? Well, there's actually several ways in which he's a, a type of Christ, which we'll come to appreciate over the next several weeks. But I think the most important way, and the way that I want you to appreciate today, is that Adam was a type of Christ in his function as a representative person. Adam prefigured Christ in his function as a representative person. And I think we can perceive that in Paul's way of referring to them simply as 
the one man. Maybe you, as we were reading this, you thought, why does he keep just calling them the one man? Well, I think it's because of this representative function. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What the one man does applies to the many. It's because of this representative character where the one stands in place of others. And we have lots of biblical examples of representative figures, don't we? You might immediately think of the high priest. That's where my mind immediately went. Think of the high priest as he wears that breastplate and God commands that that breastplate is to include 12 stones on it representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on each of those stones, the name of the tribe is to be inscribed. What's it saying? It's saying that the high priest, as he functions in his service to God, is representing all of God's people. When he goes into the Holy of Holies, they go with him, as it were. What he does, they do. Or you might think of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath, by the way, is not about defeating the giants in your life. It is not a moralistic story about how you, the little man, can defeat the big man. It is a story of two champions. It is a story of two lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as David and Goliath go out onto the field of battle, they go out representing their respective armies so that whoever loses, that army is going to serve the other. And consequently, whoever wins wins for the whole army. They have this representative function. Adam prefigures Christ in this way, that he represents many. Paul makes this clear elsewhere. Think of the way that he talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he says, now pay careful attention especially to the adjectives that are used here. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now notice a few things about the way he refers to Adam and to Jesus. First, he refers to them both as Adam. Now, was Jesus' name actually Adam? No. But Jesus functions like Adam. In fact, the word Adam in Hebrew can mean both Adam, the name, or it can mean man, mankind, humanity. Jesus, as an Adam, is representing Humanity. As atoms, they correspond to two creations, a first creation, which was earthly and of the dust, and a new creation, which is heavenly and of the spirit. And remember the adjectives he used to describe them. He calls them the first man and the second man. 
who was the second man? Well, it would have been Adam's son. And there were a lot of men in between Adam and Jesus, weren't there? But Paul reduces all of history down to these two men. The first man and the second man. As if nobody ever else existed between them. But he not only says that they are the first man and the second man, he also says he is the first Adam and the last Adam. That means there are no other Adams to come. There are just these two. If Jesus is the last Adam, then he is the last one to function in this way. What's clear from what Paul says, both in 1 Corinthians and what he says here in Romans 5, is that these two men represent others. They represent others. And that brings us to our second point, that these two Adams have taken two actions. And notice that just like Paul referred to them in the singular, the one man, here he refers to their actions in the singular. So he repeatedly refers to Adam's sin as his one trespass. He speaks of the one man's disobedience. And that act of disobedience is contrasted with Jesus's one act of righteousness, with the one man's obedience. Adam's action was trespass and disobedience. Jesus's action was righteousness and obedience. And note that these actions were not just done for themselves. They were representative actions. Their actions had consequences for everybody that they represented. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but before we get there, I want you to appreciate the disproportionality in these actions. In the case of Adam, it really was one trespass, wasn't it? It was one act of disobedience. The moment that Adam took that fruit from Eve, the fruit that God had explicitly commanded that he should not eat, in that moment of cosmic treason, Adam became a sinner. Adam became a rebel. He became a transgressor. He became guilty and condemned. And in him, the whole world of humanity became condemned as well. And note that Adam's act of rebellion did not take place in a world like ours. It did not take place in a world bent toward evil. It did not take place in a world where fruit was scarce. Adam wasn't hungry. He wasn't starving. He didn't do this out of necessity. This took place in a world of goodness, a world where everything was perfectly suited and amenable to Adam's needs, a world where Adam could eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden except for this one. But what about Christ? What about his one act of righteousness? What about his act of obedience? Was it just one act? 
And for the sake of comparison, Paul sums it up as one act. And it certainly culminates in one final act of obedience at the cross. But even that final act of obedience depended on a whole perfect life of righteousness. If Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was going to have any merit at all, it depended on a life of obedience. He had to go as a lamb without spot or blemish. For Christ, his one act of obedience was the submission of his will to the righteous will of God at every moment, of every hour, of every day of his entire life. From infancy, through childhood, through puberty, into adulthood, every thought, every word, every deed, all of it done in righteousness and with a view to God's glory. And what's more, unlike the first Adam, his obedience did not take place in a world of fruitfulness. It took place in a world of futility. His obedience was not in a world that was amenable to him, but in a world that was averse to him. It was not in a world of comfort, a world of ease, but a world of misery and sorrow and affliction. And yet even in that context, when he was starving in the wilderness, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When he was being persecuted, by the very people he came to save, when he was being betrayed by his closest friends, when he was weary, when he was tired, when he was slandered, when he was mocked, when he was spit upon, when he was stripped, when he was beaten, when he was nailed to the cross, in all of those moments, he obeyed. And he obeyed perfectly. And he obeyed for you, his people because his obedience was a representative action. Just like Adam's sin was accounted to all those whom he represented, the whole human race, so the obedience of Jesus is accounted to all those whom he represents, his church. And that brings us to our final point here that these two atoms with their two actions produce two very different after-effects. For Adam, you can truly call it an aftermath, a horrible consequence. What is the aftermath of Adam's sin? It brings all mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And to put it in one word, we can just use the word death. Adam brought death into the world. Therefore, just as sin came into the world and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. In that moment when mankind became guilty before God, his communion and fellowship with the Creator was severed. It was a spiritual death. In that moment when he lost all of that bliss and original righteousness, they became ethically corrupt. It was a moral death. And in that moment, corruption entered into the created order itself, and a process of misery and decay would begin where man would eventually 
return to the dust, for dust you are and dust you shall return. It was physical death. When the Bible says that death spread to all men, it is death not just of a physical character, it is death of a moral character, and it is death of a spiritual character as well. But what about Christ? What are the after effects of his one act of righteousness? What is the outcome of his obedience? Where Adam's sin brought a declaration of condemnation, Christ's righteousness brings a declaration of justification. Where Adam's disobedience made many sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many are made righteous. And where through Adam's sin death reigned, death reigned like a king reigning. Because of Christ, grace reigns through righteousness. Are you grateful that grace reigns? I am so grateful that grace reigns. And where grace reigns through righteousness, it leads to eternal life, to reconciliation, and to newness of life. Where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. And because he prevailed, those gospel chimes can ring out every hour upon the hour and every new day and every new year. Even in the midst of your sinfulness, You can hear those gospel chimes. You can hear them ringing out, telling you of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That in all of those times when you have failed over and over and over again, and you have betrayed God, and you have committed idolatry, you have exchanged that fountain of goodness and love for fountains that cannot satisfy and hold no water, Even then, you can hear those gospel chimes ring out and remind you and bring you back in faith and in repentance to the Savior who lived for you in your place. And not just in the good times, but in the bad times, in the brutal times when he was sick and miserable and tired and persecuted. He obeyed for you who believe. So that you don't even need, ultimately, to understand how it all works. Because you can hear those gospel chimes. You can hear those benefits that are yours through the second, the last, and the greater Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that grace reigns in the lives of believers, that death no longer reigns over us, that sin shall not have dominion over us. Yes, we are sinners and we continue to sin, but you have dominion over us. Your grace has dominion over us. For you have obeyed in our place and you have not only done all that we have failed to do, but you have taken the curse And you have taken the death that was ours so that 
as grace reigns, righteousness might reign in life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we pray that you would press this upon our hearts because we so desperately need to hear it. Lord, we need your chimes of the gospel to ring out over the accusations of our conscience and our enemy, the devil, our accuser. Lord, we need those gospel chimes to ring out every day to call us back to faith and repentance and to more and greater fidelity. And so, Lord, we pray that they would ring out in our hearts to the glory of the the second and last Adam, in whose name we pray. Amen. I love our new Trinity Psalter hymnal. I keep finding these perfect hymns to accompany my sermons. One of the things that I'm disappointed with, though, in this hymnal is that in our old hymnal, the P of Again to Paradise Restored was capitalized, indicating that through the justifying work of Jesus, we are not just restored to Adam's old place in the garden, to that paradise. We are restored to the heavenly paradise. We have that eternal inheritance secured. Now, I'm not sure who I need to talk to about that, but maybe in a future run we can get it done. But that's what this meal does. It restores us. It it, it reminds us that we have been reconciled to God through the death of His Son. These elements are pictures of His body and His blood. They are images. They're not exactly types, but they are pictures of Christ Himself and of His work. As they come to you today, they come to you broken into pieces, and the wine comes to you having been poured out to signify what Jesus underwent for you. But before He could even come to this hour, to this moment, He had to live a life of perfect obedience. He had to satisfy all of the demands of God's righteous law so He could be that sufficient sacrifice. And He did. By His one act of obedience, the many are made righteous. And so today, as you come to participate in the Lord's Supper, if you can come in faith and repentance, if you belong to Jesus Christ and are a communicant member in His church, and even if you are coming, you know your sins, they're weighing heavy on your heart, cast those things aside and come in faith to Christ. Because this meal is a means of grace for you. It is one of the ways in which God communicates to you of His life, of His love, and His readiness to forgive. And so, if you are trusting Christ today, come and find this assurance for your faith. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take this, these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to Your table, we do not trust in ourselves. We trust in nothing that we have to offer or bring. All of our works are as filthy rags. None is righteous. No, not one. And yet, Lord, we come as those who have been accounted righteous in Your sight. Uh, Through the death uh, and through the merit of Jesus, You look upon us with His righteousness, that righteousness which is God-approved righteousness, 
so that we can come and commune with you and have a meal with you and have a meal with one another and share in your, your peace and your grace and the hope that is ours. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make this means of grace effectual to us, apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and by the blessing of Christ as we receive it with faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one thing I did not say. It was implied, but I'd like to say it specifically. That this meal, though it is a meal for sinners, is not a meal for unrepentant sinners. It's not a meal for those who do not yet belong to Christ, who are not yet disciples of Christ. And if you want to be his disciple, even though you might let these elements pass today, I'd encourage you not to let Christ pass, but to call out in your heart by faith to him and come and speak with me about what, what it means to, be, to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Well, as we come then, let's, let's uh, remember that Christ said, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood poured out.